Ren series in Revelation, which is an exciting book to read, isn't it? And, and we're doing seven weeks of Revelations chapter 1 to 3, when John receives a vision and dictates uh, like letters. He's, it's almost like he's a, a secretary for a while, you know, and he, he's hearing from Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to write a letter to these seven churches. And he says that each church has a lamp. And that when, when you are a church that represents Jesus, symbolically, this, there's like a lamp that says, you're one of mine, you're my church. And, and, and my proposition to you is that that represents the, the manifest presence of Jesus. And he, and he warns us, you know, there's, you know, when you're not being my church, there's times where I may have to remove that lamp. And so we're looking through all these different things that he says. So if we go to the map on the screen... You'll see once again, Patmos, bottom left-hand corner there, that's where John was, little tiny island. He was held captive there, and he's dictating these seven letters to these seven churches, all in that same region where he was, connected by a road. They flow in that order in the clockwise direction. So this week, we're in the fourth city, the fourth church called Thyatira. Man, I practice that again. Every week, I practice the name... A hundred times, and then you get to it, and you go blank. Thyatira. Let's get into it. So, Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Here's what Jesus says. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, and whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. Notice he said that every week to every church. He sees it. He sees us. I have seen your love. I've seen your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. So we'll stop there for a second because it just seems like this must be a pretty good church. You know, that's a pretty good list, isn't it? If God was to write to us, we'd be happy with that list so far, wouldn't we? That's good. They do have one major issue, and we're going to get to that, but he lists off these things. First, the church knows how to love. You know, remember the first church in Ephesus, and, and God was like, you know, this is a big deal. This is the very first church I'm writing to, and you don't know how to love. Or he says, you've forgotten your first love. You know, how to love me, and how to love each other, how to love people. And that was a big concern. And the warning was, I'll take my lamp, but specifically for that church. So this church, though, they knew how to love. That's good. That's a really good tick. The lamp was burning bright here. And he also says that you're faithful, you know, because we know that every church really in this time, and particularly in this region, they were facing it. It was tough. Tough to be a follower of Jesus. You know, persecution, pressure was coming against them. And they didn't waver. They stayed true. Just like the church in Smyrna we read about in the second week. He also says, well, you know how to serve. You know, as my followers, you're serving me. You know, their faith was more than words. We did a whole series on that in James a couple of years ago. I think that was right in the middle of COVID, if I remember rightly. These, this church didn't just talk the talk. You know, they were walking the walk. They put their hands to the plow. And he says, or Jesus commends them, he says, and you're, there's a constant improvement. I really like this, actually, when he says this. I can see your constant improvement. 
In other words, they were growing in their faith and in how they practiced their faith. You know, they weren't just sitting still. It wasn't just a turn up to church on Sunday for a couple of hours deal. There was real growth. There's discipleship going on. There's transformation. I guess you could say holiness was evident in this church. And Jesus commends them. Every week he says it. I see what you do. However, there is one big issue that they need to address. Right? There always is, isn't there? So we get to verse 20. He says, I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. That always seems weird when we, when we read that. Um, but there was stuff going on in this time, you know. There was a, a lot of idolatry around. There's a lot of gods and there's a lot of sacrifice going on as well. And so there was this way of saying, don't have anything to do with it, you know. Like a secondhand kind of association. Just if you're wondering what that's about. Then he says, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, this is some tough words now, so you have to bear with me. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery will her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Now, that seems pretty hard from Jesus to say that. Um, some say that perhaps... He's talking, remember, there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation. Perhaps he's talking about her children, like the, the churches that she's looking after or something like that, that he'll take, take care of in a negative sense. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give, each to, I'll give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you, Thyatira, who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan, actually, I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come, to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end. And then it continues, to then I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. It's symbolism. They will also have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. End of letter. A lot in there, hey. So we're going to unpack at least some of it this morning. Now, for some reason, this church is tolerating a teacher, you know, or a self-proclaimed prophet in this church who's teaching a message of compromise. And perhaps, and I'm only guessing... Maybe, because remember Jesus said, this is a pretty good church. You do a lot of good stuff. Perhaps it's because they love to love people, which is good. It was the first thing that God commended them for. You know how to love. And I understand this, but love has boundaries. And sometimes, specifically and particularly for leadership, if someone's leading them astray, there's, there's action you have to take. Love does not stay silent. And it's interesting that Jesus calls her Jezebel. We can safely assume that that wasn't her name. People, after all of the history, they're not going to be naming their kids Jezebel, right? So it's probably not her name, but it meant something. And the church would have known what it meant, mostly. And most of you probably know what it means as well. He's referencing uh, Queen Jezebel from the Old 
Testament account. And, and you can read about that in 1 Kings if you want. But the really short version, in case you're not sure, is that uh, this is going right back, you know, probably a few kings after Solomon, if memory serves me, serves me correctly. There was a king by the name of Ahab. He was the king of Samaria. That was the northern kingdom of the tribes after they had split in two. And he married the daughter of a foreign king, and that was her name, Jezebel. But the thing is, she was a prophet of the, the pagan god Baal. And she not only led Ahab into that direction to worship uh, Baal, but she instituted Baal worship on a national scale. This is supposed to be the nation that follows God as his people, and she led them completely down a pagan path to worship this idol, this god. Completely pagan. You know, it was filled with all sorts of dark and evil practices. There was temple prostitution going on. There was even, in extreme cases, infant sacrifice happening. So you get the, you get the point. Like this, this is like the opposite of following God. There's a big showdown with Elijah, if you know the story. Um, God demonstrates his power. You can read that. We can look at it another day. But the point for Revelation here is that Jesus is labeling this teacher in this church like as a Jezebel type person. In other words, this teacher in this church was deceiving people through her teaching, leading people astray, and once again compromising or teaching a, a compromising message, and it always seems to be around the area of sexuality. And for some reason, they were tolerating her and God offers a chance for her to repent. This is the thing you've always got to remember. It's clearly in there. God's like, I'm giving you a chance. You know, you're in a position of authority. You're literally leading my church astray. Please change. That's what repent means. It's a change of mind. It's a decision that we make. So Jesus, because she doesn't, he declares a, a strict judgment on her. Just so the church doesn't misunderstand, God doesn't tolerate this kind of thing. You know, if, if you're leading his people, he doesn't tolerate false teachers or false teaching for a simple reason. He doesn't, not only does he not want them to misrepresent him, they tend to leave people away from him. You know, the, us, the ones that he loves, which is people. He loves people. When, when there's false teaching going on and people are being led away from him, I think that makes him upset. That's When you just read that letter right there, you got the picture, didn't you? God's like, he's not happy. Yeah? Like you could say maybe he's a little angry at this. It, what makes God angry is leaders who lead people away from him. Jesus was like that too, wasn't he, with the Pharisees in, in some way? That was the thing that used to get him upset. You're leading people away from me. So yeah, he has some things to say. These harsh words to this person in Thyatira come from a deep love and concern for people. And so the deceivers who don't repent, yeah, they're going to face his judgment. He doesn't leave us wondering on this, you know. He's pretty blunt. So there's two points I want you to hear today. The first thing is watch out for teachers who deceive. Now, I was recently talking to a, a new Christian here in this church and, uh, and she's like a sponge absorbing all these things, teaching about Christianity, about faith, about God. And she was telling me about all the stuff that she was listening to on, on YouTube and other things like that. And I just cautioned her because while we live in a time where you can watch and listen to a smorgasbord of really good 
really good, healthy teaching. I bet you've all got your favorite teach, teachers that you have on your iPods and stuff. iPods, who has them anymore? <laughs> on your phones and all that sort of stuff. Man, I'm showing my age now. But there's also a smorgasbord of junk food. And if you're not sure, you have to be careful. Because there's people who have a talent for twisting God's word to suit their own agenda. And they can make it sound right. They can make it sound like it's from God. Paul says, they say things that your itching ears want to hear instead of teaching sound doctrine. That's a very real thing. And you'll read that in one of his letters in 2 Timothy, I think it is. This particular teacher in Thyatira would label their own teaching as deeper truths. And, and, you know, I think if we go back to the scripture there, wasn't that in quotation marks, if I remember rightly? Deeper truths. Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's actually, they're from Satan. Like, they're not deeper truths. They're from Satan, the master deceiver. He tends to be involved with false teachers. Now, don't hear me wrong on this because this is not an anti-intellectual message from Jesus, okay? Don't hear that message this morning because if there's an intellect in the room, it's, it's Jesus, all right? And, and he's, he's happy to push deep into understanding the truths about him and about the world and, and all that sort of stuff. But I would encourage everyone to go deeper in their study and understanding their relationship with him. So by deeper truths, he's, I think Jesus, he's being sarcastic, isn't he? And talking about that teaching that, um, with that deceptive title where someone can really just say whatever they want and call it deeper, deeper truths. But you can see how this plays out and it still happens today. Watch out for anyone who insinuates they know more than everyone else. You know, they've got the truth that no one else has. They're the smartest person in the room. Or... And this still happens to today. They're kind of like a self-proclaimed special messenger. Those people still exist today. They're the, they're the only ones that can really interpret things correctly, particularly revelation like we're in now. They're around. You know, I've got the, I've got the real interpretation of revelation. They, they tend to attract people. They talk about end times a lot, which is... In one sense, talking, talking about end times is great, but there's a big focus on it. People are very interested in their deeper truths. Sometimes there's signs of control over people. There's too much power. There's no accountability. Pride and arrogance are evident. Sometimes greed is part of it as well. They're the people we've got to be cautious of. Deception starts small and grows bit by bit and eventually causes damage, and that's probably what's happened here in this church. So there's a warning for us. This is why leaders and teachers must be held to account. And, and actually, you know, this is what these seven letters are kind of like for us. They're, they hold us accountable, don't they? You know, as we read them, we can compare ourselves to what Jesus is saying. We can filter our church through these letters, through these words. We're all accountable to Jesus, but leaders in the church are actually held to a higher standard or a high standard. Even in this letter, you'll see the judgment. Jesus, he kind of he dishes it out to a leader who's leading this flock astray. At some point, someone has to stop this. He'd been real clear about it. If you read James chapter 3, he says this, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. What a great verse for me 
to read out today. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, look, I'm saved by grace. I'm good in that sense. You know what I mean? But I'm saying that God's watching me and how I've got a, a very important role. So are the leaders in this church because he doesn't want us leading anyone astray. And, and in a sense, I guess we're judged more strictly by, by you as well. The church has a role to not only grow, mentor, and encourage those called by God into leadership. And I hope there's some that come out of these camps. You know, future leaders are there. So we've got to nurture them, ha- have lots of grace. <laughs> but we've got to filter out those who put their hand up for leadership who obviously don't have the gifts or the integrity or the character to lead or teach others. Because the damage caused by a bad leader or false teacher has a lot of consequences. Sometimes they're eternal, quite frankly, for people. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? You've all seen it. You've probably experienced it in different ways. And so we leaders need to heed this message. It's obvious that James is saying, when you take on a leadership or teaching role in the church, God expects a high standard of you. And if that's not you, you're not a leader. He loves the church too much to let Bad leaders cause harm to his people. So we should be held to account. You know, this is actually one of the benefits of being in a denomination, by the way. Let me just say, maybe there's some benefits of not being in a denomination. We won't go there today. But there's benefits, right? Because I'm actually held to account to several people. People above me in our denomination. I have to report to. I've got to do a service report every year. I've got to, I've got to make it clear that I still believe you know, our statement of belief and, and, and follow the right doctrine and that I'm, my family's are going well, my marriage is going well. Um, like, I get asked the hard questions. And I'm also accountable to the elders that you elect every year. So every month when we meet, sometimes they ask me some hard questions, as well as encourage me a lot, which they do, by the way. <laughs> and I'm accountable to you guys. Ultimately, that's how our... That's how our movement works. We're, we're quite democratic in that sense. It, but it can be sometimes a little annoying, maybe, as a, as a pastor to have to do all those things. But it's for a good reason, isn't it? Yeah. It's for a good reason, because we've all seen what happens when you stray. So a teacher or preacher in the spirit of Jezebel, a deceiver, a false prophet, should be held to account for actions, and if, if needed, removed from his or her position. Second thing is, and I didn't quite clearly see this in today's scripture, but I want to mention it, is that we've got to watch out for self-deception. Since we're talking about deception, I wanted to cover this a little bit today. So we're watching out for people who may deceive us, but we're pretty good at deceiving ourselves. We have the ability to do that. And as a pastor, you know, I've seen the narratives that we, and, and I've got to include myself in this, but we have the ability to create narratives to convince ourselves and those around us that what we're probably doing may be the right thing. You know, maybe I think I've got the right answers all the time. Because our sinful hearts have an uncanny ability to deceive ourselves into poor decisions that wouldn't align with what God would say for us. And then we create a narrative to support it. I've got this quote by C.S. Lewis. Now, you know how he writes. Sometimes you've got to focus, right? So let me read slowly. This is the preface to Paradise Lost. He says, No man or or woman ever 
at first described to himself the act he was about to do as murder or adultery or fraud or treachery or perversion. And when he hears it so described by other men, he is, in a way, sincerely shocked and surprised. Those others don't understand. If they knew what it had really been like for him, they would not use those crude stock names. So with a wink or in a cloud of muddy emotion, the thing has slipped into his will as something not very extraordinary, something of which rightly understood, and in all his highly peculiar circumstances, he may even feel proud. Do you follow what he's saying? I'm talking about self-deception. We can convince ourselves of a lot of things. We can be deceived by others. But to be frank, we're more easily deceived by ourselves. And that's why we have to let God's word and his truth shape our thinking and search our hearts. Like, I'm just glad to hear that was what was going on with the teenagers. And there was like a, there's like a freedom, isn't there, when we, when we submit it to God. Let him search your heart. Because we live in a time when truth is considered subjective, isn't it? How often do we hear this statement that I have my truth and you have your truth? Am I the only one that's, that's heard that? Yeah, good. But there is objective and actual truth. You know, if, you, if you're a student of the Bible, you'll know that God's truth has stood the test of time. There's a reason why thousands of year later, years later, we're still going with God's truth. It stood the test of time. And that's why we have to filter how we live through his word. And that's why we have to go deeper into understanding uh, his word and, and knowing him. So I wanted to say today, make it your life ambition to know God deeply. Make it your life ambition to know and understand and apply his words of life. If you only have a shallow understanding, it's easy to be deceived. And it's easy to deceive yourself. If you want to know the real deeper truths, actually, I won't use the, the scare quotation, but the actual deeper truths, thumbs up. Uh, I couldn't think of the opposite to that. But if you want to know, then this is where you've got to go. So to do that, learn and listen to reputable sources only. You know, be cautious when someone is challenging long-held orthodox Christian views. If you want to understand that, go for it. But there's caution when someone's changing 2,000 years of deep reflection and theology. So learn what, perhaps learn what those long-held orthodox views actually are. That could be a starting point. You know, I'm talking about the essentials of faith, understanding the nature of God, understanding his big picture. The Bible may have been written a long time ago, and people will tell you it's ancient. But it's amazing how it still holds up to today. It's amazing how 40, all those authors don't contradict each other. There's something incredible about the Bible that's life-giving. I know there's some differences between you know, denominations and different groups of Christians. Mostly it's around the non-essential parts, right? But there should be no disagreement on the essential core tenets of our faith. Know what they are, though. Know what they are so that you can defend them. 
and so that you can live them. The Apostles' Creed is actually a good starting point, by the way. Like, why, why would we believe those things that are written out in the Apostles' Creed? That they're the essentials of our faith. So what I'm talking about to you today is be well-informed, listen to the right people, study His Word, protect yourself from deception. In fact, I've got an idea for you. Starting, I think it's this week or next, it's on the screen here. There's actually a, a, a class starting here on the 13th. What's today? The 9th or something? So it's this week. I've done this subject uh, many years ago, Introduction to the New Testament. You'll learn how the New Testament canon was put together. You'll learn about the different literary styles, the authors of the books and the letters, their purpose and their audience. You'll take a look at each of the Gospels. You know, what, is, what are the synoptic Gospels? And why do they, where are they similar? Where are they different? And why is John different to the synoptic Gospels? You'll learn about those sorts of things. You'll take a dive into the nature of Jesus and what the New Testament reveals about who he is. You'll spend time considering the early church in Acts and learn you know, a little bit more about Paul and the battles he faced over doctrine and his amazing church planting missionary journeys. And you'll learn uh, from other letters from James and Peter and John. And, and there's even a study in Revelation at the end of it, right? So that's a good reason to do it right there. You'll get an understanding of the bigger picture of the Bible and some of the history of the church. And the church has had to grapple with doctrine over the years. So it's an introduction. And of course, you can go way deeper in other ways. But why not do something like that? You know, because you're a believer in Jesus. So why not understand more? And be careful about deception. And by the way, while it's, it's an accredited subject or course, you can do it for what they call audit, which means you pay less and you don't have to do the assignments. Okay, so right away... That should make it more appealing to most of you. I wish I could have done them all for order. But anyway, <laughs> you learn more if you do the assignments, by the way. So just an idea. You know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here preaching about deceptive teaching. How do we protect ourselves from that? Something like that. Because we have to avoid people who deceive us with false teaching. We need to know why we can trust the Bible. And we need to be informed by God's word so we don't fall into that trap. Deception in the church, Jesus is sending a, a, a letter, a warning to us today. So we hear your words today, Lord. And we heed that advice. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that your heart is for people, that your heart is for us to not be led away from you. I think that's the the key message. And so, God, I pray that you'll help us just to sift and to filter all the stuff that we read and listen to about you and about faith in you. And I pray, God, that we would be a church, a church, Lord, who stands really firm on your truth. I feel like that's what you really want to say in this letter today, on your truth, that we'll worship you in spirit and in truth. And I just thank you, God, as Mark's been praying, that uh, this is a church, Lord, where you are moving. I thank you, Lord, that you, you're bringing us together in great 
in a great unifying way. I thank you, Lord, for teenagers who are encountering you and being discipled. And we ask, God, you continue to do that. We ask that you continue to show us your way. God, we pray against um, any, any message that can deceive us. We pray against that, Lord. Ask that, um, that your systems of accountability and truth, Lord, will always prevail here. So we submit ourselves afresh to you today. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you will not only fill our hearts, but fill our hearts with your truth and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand together.